You're listening to Food Confidence, a podcast about approachable health and imperfect food, all for the sake of the next generation. I'm Jennifer Bravo. And I'm Andrea Paul. We are two non-diet health professionals on a mission to empower parents and caregivers in raising food and body confident kids. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Food Confidence Podcast. Today we're talking to Jennifer Wiesner, who's a licensed clinical social worker and sex therapist. She's also a writer, public speaker, and sexual educator who lives and practices in Cumberland, Maine. In this episode, Jennifer shares how to navigate the uncomfortable conversations with our children around anatomy, sex, pleasure, and consent, and why these conversations are necessary to have with our children as they grow. Thanks for listening, and here's our conversation with Jennifer. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the Food Confidence Podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. So just so our audience knows, we are speaking today with Jennifer Wiesner. So we'll be referring to her as Jennifer, whereas our my <laughs> co-host here, um, Jennifer Bravo, will refer to as Jen. I'll go by Jen today. Just so we can keep things <laughs> straight. <laughs> So to kick us off with um, our, our conversation today, could you tell our audience, tell our listeners, tell us who you are and what you do? We'd love to know more. Sure. Um, as you said, I'm Jennifer Wiesner, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker and a sex therapist, and I'm certified through the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And I have a private practice in Cumberland, Maine, that I work with adults um, and couples and adult individuals and couples. And then I'm also a public speaker, writer, and a sexuality educator. And a lot of people know me well in the state for my Raising Sexually Healthy Children workshops, which are for parents and adults who influence children on how to raise sexually healthy children and why talking to their kids and teens about sexuality is a healthy and normal part of life and that they too can be competent in doing that. And then also one of the other hats that I wear is I speak to um, medical providers from dentists to nurses, medical students uh, on healthy sexuality and best practices. And then I also do consultations with parents if they don't like the group environment on how they can get competent around raising a sexually healthy child. And then also um, doing consultation and workshops for therapists and like I said, medical providers. So in a nutshell, <laughs> some of the things that I do. Yeah. Wow, well, that's, that's it's amazing. Yeah, that's quite quite a list of yeah. accomplishments and, and definitely necessary work. Thank you um, very much. And I recently attended one of your workshops, Jennifer, and um, it was for you know it was geared towards parents, and I thought it was just absolutely amazing. And it was just an introduction, and there was just a wealth of information that you shared that was so invaluable and and really just you know, just that information that we all need in order to help raise more resilient kids around sexuality. Um, And so one of the things that really struck me the most about that workshop was how just how many parents were raised in like, quote unquote, quiet households where we all kind of just had to learn about sex and sexuality on our own and, and and figure it out as we go. And I'm sure that's something that that, you know, if just this workshop is a representation at all, it's, I'm sure, something that you see quite frequently. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, I would say probably out of the about 700 adults that have gone through my workshops in Maine, I would say only about maybe two handfuls say that they received information that aided them in making good decisions about their bodies and sexuality when they became an adolescent. And what's interesting is that I've been kind of testing that out. And so when I go to, say, Bates, I was there two weeks ago guest lecturing, or when I'm at... um, med, you know, working, uh, doing a lecture with med students who are a younger population, I asked them the same question. Did they have what they needed, you know, as they were growing up to make good decisions about their bodies? And sadly, I get the same numbers. And so what, you know, that strikes me is that we're continuing to fail at providing our kids in this area, this critical information about overall well-being and lifelong enjoyment, enjoyment with regards to sexuality. But Here's the good news <laughs> that, you know, it, that's what we need, right? Because here I use the word fail, right? So the good news is no matter what the age, we can show up for our kids in this way. And, you know, by owning our discomfort, when we talk about sexuality, by saying, yeah, I know my face is getting red, you know, but you know what? We have to remember that we didn't have parents that did this for us. The majority of us did not have that. And so if we let our kids know that, like, hey, I'm kind of stumbling through this because guess what? I didn't get it either. But what I do know is that it's really important for the rest of your life. And so letting our kids know that. Yeah. And could you speak a little bit to maybe some of like the statistics of why it's so important to talk about sex with our kids and and, and why having this open conversation and being an approachable parent around the topic of sexual health is so important. Um, well, you know, I would like to refer to something that's current right now that I had just read this past week that I think relates to what you're asking. There was, um, let's see, it was an op-ed in the New York Times, and it was about sex education in our country um, by Andrea, I don't know how to say her last name, I think it's Barica. And she's a sex educator, but she pulled together all the statistics and the information around, um, she pulled it together from the Guttmacher Institute just to show sort of where are we at with sex education in our schools. And what we what was shown was that only approximately half of school districts in the U.S. require any sex education. And then the ones that do, most mandate or stress abstinence-only education. So just think for a moment, no STI education, which is sexually transmitted infections, same as STDs, but we know they're infections, not diseases. No consent and no birth control. And that 18 states still require that instruction on the importance of engaging in sexual activity within marriage. So, of course, anybody can go to the guttmacherinstitute.org, guttmacher.org, and look at all this. But that was new, all this put together on March 1st of 2019. And so why this is important to me is that, you know, we continue to put money into abstinence-based education. And it's proved to not be effective when we know that more inclusive sex education, comprehensive sex education, includes, you know, both abstinence and contraception. And there is one area in all of this where I actually agree with the government, one, um, is that this information really belongs in the home from a very young age with parents views and values on board you know what the school provides is an is a critical safety net for all the kids who aren't getting that but we know it's an aspect of parenting that we really all need to take up 
especially in this sex silent and sex saturated, you know, culture that we have, it cloaks healthy sexuality. And so my mission is to change that culture beginning in Maine and encouraging parents to see that this really important aspect of shepherding our children is navigable. It is their children's human right. And it can change outcomes of sexual assault for our youth, as well as having a healthy, positive sex educa- um, positive education for the rest of their lives. Wow. I mean, thank you for sharing those statistics. Um, certainly, you know, that's shocking for me to hear that so many states, what was it, 50% of states are only including a comprehensive no only education? only approximately half of school districts in the youth in the u.s require any sex education yeah. okay <laughs> yeah so yeah thanks for for clarifying yeah. that so that you know in the state that we are in as a country yeah, or the me too movement and, and just it being the year 2019 i would assume i would have assumed that it was much a larger percentage and the fact that so many are still focusing on abstinence only just seems it's again it's it's just a bit shocking that we're still in that yeah kind of that kind of mindset I guess well I think too like I I think I just recently and and Jennifer you might know this statistic better um but I think I heard recently or maybe it was at your workshop Jennifer that the state of Texas is completely abstinence-based teachings and they also have the highest rate of teen pregnancies I think yeah, I can't remember if if that came up in the workshop or if because I, I that I I can't say exactly that's what the numbers were. You may know better, right. but I'm like I think I heard the same thing, and yeah. I don't have it in front of me. But I just was at the annual sex ed conference in Augusta on Friday, and we actually got a pamphlet about all of that information and who's offering what and. Um, so I know I have it there. I just don't know the answer to it right now. But yeah, it, it is shocking though. And like you said, you know, despite what the outcomes are, they're still putting, you know, funneling money and effort into this this education that isn't working. <laughs> so then what do, what do we do as parents? You know, how what does it mean to be an approachable parent on the topic of sexual health? And how can we um, build the next generation to be just even more resilient and even more, you know, um, happy, healthy, and positive about sexuality. And kind of knowing their own bodies, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go back to the good news, right? Let's go back to that. (laughs) And the good, again, you know, doesn't matter what age, you know, we can show up in that way. And the way that we can begin that is we can begin with, from the time that they're really young, normalizing body parts you know, not omitting certain parts or calling them that names that don't full, aren't fully inclusive, like the whole vagina and vulva aspect. It's, it's a vulva. Like what I say is, you know, the vagina is just the whole, you know, let's not omit the parts or the clitoris, you know, so normalizing and and speaking the parts and, and calling them by their anatomical names, reading books that are developmentally geared to their age, like the whole Roby Harris book series. Um, and that book series is is um, the first one is it's not the stork for four to seven year olds, and then yeah, <laughs> and then it's it's so amazing is the next one, and that's for seven to ten, and then for the ten up, that's it's called it's perfectly normal, and that 
it, those books, they just, because they're developmentally geared to the age groups, you don't have to worry about, oh my gosh, like, you know, am I giving them too much or, you know, is this on point for their age group? Um, you know, this way it gives them an opportunity to have it explained without you sort of, you know, worrying how it's being delivered. And then reading with our child is wonderful. They can ask questions. Um, and the books, you know, they support open dialogues about healthy, healthy sexuality, consent, the, the whole, you know, importance of body safety and body joy. And so being that approachable parent means that we can handle the questions, we can deal with our reactions and give responses. And that, you know, the um, giving the vibe really that to the children that we are welcoming to questions. And so, you know, it's not just of what's coming out of our mouth. You know, let's just take a moment and think about all the movies we've seen that have included, you know, ha ha um, scenes about sex education. The teacher looks like it's either the, you know, the phys ed teacher who's going to die, you know, doing it, you know, so, and how uncomfortable it is. You know, we have to make sure that we are watching not only what's coming out of our mouth, but also how we are delivering it in our body language. And then also how we are receiving their questions and responding. And although that may sound a little onerous, Again, it really is manageable, especially if you read these kids' books ahead of time and kind of just prepare yourself, see how it fits into your values, and then and then start reading them. And I, this probably will come up later, but while we're talking just about the books, no one book is really going to fully represent the colorful landscape that is your own family and your beliefs. So what I always suggest is, you know, a few books and adding in the extra information that is part of your family. So I have a gay brother, I work with trans folks. That stuff was always part of our discussions in the when we were reading the books or talking about sexuality. So, um, you know, finding the books that are going to work for you and then adding in that extra beauty that is in your own family. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think that's so important to add in the little colorful pieces of your own life. Yeah, and it's really important because it, it's what makes you, you know, you and your family who you are. And, and that's so important. You know? and I think that helps too with that, the approachability, you know, and, and being able to talk openly about how your family landscape looks and how it might be different from their best friend right. or you know, their peers right. at school. I think that really builds right. into that approachability and, and knowing that you're willing as mom and dad or, you know, mom and mom or dad and dad, whoever it is, exactly. to say, let's look at our family and it's okay to come to us with questions because this is, this is our normal. Right. This is our normal. Yeah. Our family might be different from other families, but that's okay. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Right. And let's, let's, we're here for you and let's talk about this openly, even if it's uncomfortable for all of us. Yes. And even know? saying that, right? Like letting them know that because I didn't have this education as a parent and because I'm now bringing it up to you, you know, it, it sometimes might feel uncomfortable and that's okay too. And there's a life lesson in there. And the life lesson is that we as a family can talk about uncomfortable things and we all survive because guess what? That is a life lesson we want to be teaching our kids for when they have relationships and how do they talk about navigating relationships, sexual experiences, consent, you know, pleasure, what I want, what I don't want. We need to be having difficult conversations with our kids. Yeah. And, and modeling yeah. how, how they come out. Yeah. Yeah. 
Great. So um, just in terms of something that you just said about, you know, new relationships or, you know, when children are getting into their own relationships Mm -hmm. um, and we touched on consent a little bit earlier, um, you advocate for using, you know, safe language and unsafe, safe and unsafe in terms of sex. Can you kind of share a little bit more about that safe and unsafe language? Sure, sure. And, you know, I think that if we can even, I'll talk about that, but even just back it up one step, because with younger kids, when we're talking about safe and unsafe touch, which is really where that language, you know, begins, it's always a popular one that comes up in my workshop around that. And so what I usually start out with is talking about, it is important that smaller children um, all the way up, you know, once they're into their, you know, middle school years, they understand, you know, what safe touch and unsafe touch is, at least they should by that point. So really just jumping back that any, I think any physician and educator will recommend that when you start, you know, when your children are young from birth, we start with anatomical names. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves why we wouldn't, because you wouldn't call an elbow a bendy. So we need to ask ourselves why we would call a vulva or a penis, breasts or anus, something else. And so what I usually suggest parents ask themselves is, is calling the body part something different in the best interest of the child or is it for another reason? And then sometimes we'll process that. But I bring that up because a lot of times it's around those areas and and knowing their body that it is important to know body parts in conjunction with what is safe and unsafe touch. And so, you know, the terms safe and unsafe touch are really just an upgrade to the good and bad touch terminology. Um, What we know is that, you know, there is, there's some touch that is, that is bad you know, meaning or unhealthy and unsafe, and but that it can feel good to the body. And this is too confusing for kids. So, you know, these more concrete terms have been seen to, to have better outcomes. And really, if you think about good and bad, they're moral and judgmental words. And so untangling those ideas is really much harder than the more concrete words of safe and unsafe. Because if you think about, think about little kids and that, you know, they might feel that if they are reporting bad touch, that that may make them a bad girl or a bad boy. So the, the unsafe safe. So just, you know, to give you an example for littles, you know, little kids, you know, what are safe touches? You know, when mama gives you a hug or when daddy gives you a hug and a snuggle before bed, or, you know, everybody gets a hug and a kiss when grandma and grandpa arrive. But then helping them understand that the, you know, unsafe touch is the kind you don't like and the kind you would want to stop right away. Your body would not want it. And then, you know, let them know that keeping a secret when someone gives them an unsafe touch would not be a healthy thing to do that they need to share it with you. And then also that anyone who does give them an unsafe touch is the one who is doing a bad thing, not them. And then again, you know, constantly... Um, not, I'm sorry, not constantly, but just, you know, over, over their growing years, reminding and giving the lessons around bodily autonomy that their bodily belongs to them and they can say no to touch. Um, so yeah, anything that hurts you, makes you feel uncomfortable or scared or sick in your belly, that's something you want to tell someone and you keep telling until someone hears you. And the last piece, just because it also not just them receiving touch, if someone forces you to touch them or threatens you or or threatens that they'll hurt someone who's close to you, those are things that you would tell 
a trusted adult or your mom or your dad or whoever it is. So, you know, I have a two and a half year old here at home Mm -hmm. and we're kind of working on the consent of touch in terms of like hugs and kisses. Yeah. So, you know, do you want to give, you know, Nana a hug or, you know, trying to, rather than say, go give Nana a hug, we're trying to say, you know, do you want to, you want to give her a hug goodbye or, but, but, you know, she's only, she's two and a half. And so how do we start or, or what age do we start really talking about safe and unsafe and how do we bring the, the, the aspect of consent into the conversation at a young age so that it's just second nature to them growing? Well, the good thing is from what you just said, you're doing it. You know, <laughs> you're, you're asking, you know, and I think, you know, there's <laughs> yay, the good news, I'm doing it. Um, you know, there's a great article out there. I forget if it's by the Good Men Project or, or what, but it's, um, you know, how, you know, consent basically from two to 21 that, you know, we can teach children consent from a very young age. And we do that by teaching them about their bodily space, about, you know, some, some people have that child who just run and hug everybody, you know, and over time reminding them like, you know what, it's best if you ask if they want to hug. Not everybody wants to be hugged all the time or not everybody wants their hand held. And so we send those messages over and over, you know, throughout the day, throughout the week. And they slowly, it's, imagine it's really about planting seeds. That's really what it is. They're not going to automatically stop doing those things, but you plant the seed. And you can also use everyday uh, situations to help them learn that. So by, um, if they're roughhousing, you know, with my boys, I should have mentioned, I have an eighth grade boy and a fifth grade boy. And, um, I used to say to them, if they were, you know, wrestling and roughhousing, I'd always say, did you get each other's consent to do that? And after a while, of course, they'd be like, mom, you know, but they, they knew, you know, that was part of it. And I always stress that, especially in roughhousing and wrestling around that, if someone says no, or you hear a sound that comes out of their body, like, you know, ah, you know, no, or something that that is a cue for you to stop if it's no, and if you're unsure to check in. And so those are great lessons that we want them to be carrying through until they're older. And so if that's not your situation, it can be as simple as, you know, taking toys from another child or grabbing a cookie when it wasn't given to them and just saying, you know, we need to ask permission for that. You know, when we, when we, want something, we don't just take it, we ask permission. And so those are like some of the really just small everyday steps that we can take that lead to, as I always say, scaffolding of information as they grow around consent. It sounds like that kind of speaks to teaching our children what, um, you know, appropriate boundaries. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And how, you know, that I'm sure plays into the boundaries of, you know, of, of self-touch and mm. sex exploration and and maybe you could speak a little bit more to how how we as parents can navigate that space with our children sure sure and when we're talking you know about body exploration or self-touch or and you know if we have our adult hats on masturbation it's it's one of the most common issues that comes up in my workshops and a lot of parents will worry about their kids soothing or pleasuring themselves in the living room or in front of grandma on the coffee table or you know rubbing their pillow pet in the living room so you know what we know is that the least helpful thing we can do 
is shame them by telling them, don't do that with that tone of disapproval. That's probably the least helpful thing that we can do. You know, I like to say, you know, we're not born with shame. We're taught it. And sometimes we do it inadvertently. We do it probably at least several times a day, not just related to this issue, but just in other ways. So, but we do know that, especially around sexuality, that stuff can stick around long term. So it's really, you know, no, no charge, no tone. So, you know, a sex positive and helpful approach would be to name it and give it a place. So I see that touching your vulva feels good, and you can do that in your room or the bathroom alone, okay? Try not to use but. So not saying, I see that touching your vulva feels good, but you can do that in your room and in the bathroom. I'm a big proponent in my own therapy when I work with adult clients and with parents and kids that, you know, the the but kind of takes everything else away before it. So really adding the and. And you can do that in, the, in your room or the bathroom alone. Notice I said alone because some people will say in private. I'm sorry. Ask any five-year-old what private means. <laughs> I don't think you're going to quite, you're going to get a lot of different definitions. So really helping them know. You could say, you know, in private, and that means alone in your room or in the bathroom. Okay. And then just check in with them. So, you know, for example, if you're at the dinner table and your five-year-old son has their hands, his hands in his pants, and you just say without any emotion, you know, honey, we're eating dinner. Remember we said that you can have your hands there in your pants, in your room, and in the bathroom alone. So please go wash your hands and let's finish up dinner. No charge, no disapproval, just reminders and seed planting. Because, you know, over time we know they will learn this. It may not seem, you know, all at once. And of course, there are outlier things. You know, if this is happening all the time or it's happening as soon as your child comes home, maybe from school or preschool or from a birthday party, sometimes we just need to check in. Are they over, over stimulated, meaning emotionally and visually and all of that? And sometimes they just might need redirection and sometimes they just might need attention. So, you know, just checking in with those things. That's sometimes in private consultations with parents, I'll work on those issues. Yeah. Well, you know what, I'll, I'll ask then, Jennifer, yeah. you know, at what point then, if we've redirected our child, um, at what point do we check in about that again in order to foster communication and make sure that we're kind of doing our due diligence? You mean around um, sort of the self-touch? Yeah, and just in the sense of, you know, you say it once and, and you hope they heard your message, but, you know. Oh, you're probably going to have to say it a good 750 times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know there's some probably, and maybe one of you know it, some sort of statistic around, you know, you know, really acquiring a new behavior or a new habit and how many, you know, opportunities it takes to get there. <laughs> opportunities. <laughs> but truly, that's why I'm saying, you know, the whole um, planting of seeds, because truly it is going to be planting of seeds that you may not see the full growth for a while. But here's, here's a way to maybe create more of a positive feedback loop. If you then say you go up to your upstairs or, you know, in the child, you walk into the child's room and you see that they are doing that in their room, you might want to say, you know, thanks so much for listening. You know, this is exactly where you should be doing that. I'll leave you alone and, you know, exit. So giving that positive feedback about they're doing exactly what you asked in the place that they asked. That's yeah. great. Thank you. And I, I guess coming, um, one thing that I noticed with, you know, kind of the way that you presented that concept of um, just saying it kind of emotionless, 
emotionless, um, but very neutral. Like it's a very just kind of matter of fact, matter of fact, kind of, so there's no, you know, emotional kind of turmoil or charge in that saying like, Oh my gosh, what are they doing? Right. It's just like, Nope, this is something that it's, they're going to do. And if we could just present it as a very kind of neutral, normal thing, Mm -hmm. but something that we do in a specific place. Right. And that, and as they get older, we just continue to, you know, create the boundary for them. That's our job. And, and that, you know, you're saying it like, this is something that is, you know, it, it is normative. If you look on any, you know, probably, you know, the pediatrics association, you know, not, I forget what the, um, is, I think it's the APA. Yeah. Um, they'll tell you the same thing that, that it is normative behavior. And frankly, my hope again, in this mission of raising sexually healthy children is that, um, these are behaviors that we want them to be knowing from the time that they're born. And we do see, we do see in the womb, in the uterus that, um, we can see, uh, baby boys manipulating their penises. You know, this is a soothing, we just have to kind of take our adult hat off that this is a soothing thing that helps them feel comfortable, relaxed. Um, it feels good. And we want their bodies to have good experiences. And of course, now for moving into the older group, if that is something that is normative in the home um, and supported in that way, then as they get older, they will feel comfortable and in the knowledge that getting to know my own body is important, healthy, and normal. Um, and, and especially for um, young girls, because that is a, something we don't do as a culture a good job about. We really don't. Um, there's a great book, um, Joyce McFadden's book, Your Daughter's Bedroom. And it's about I the just got that one, but because of your recommendation, I'm yeah. so excited. I like yeah. already read, I flipped it open and just read whatever page, it, you know, it opened yep, to. Yep. And I was like, yes. And I like immediately read it to my husband. And I was like, this is so great, you know? And he was like, oh, you know, and it was just women telling their stories and their yeah, Telling their stories about, you know, what, what was shared with them from their mothers and, and what wasn't. And what Joyce found in that book was that um, it's the, really the conversations that don't happen that are critically important. There's an entire chapter on masturbation. So as they get older, you know, what I like to say about um, adolescence and self-touch, you know, it is a time when sexual feelings are developing, but they're at an age where they really probably can't, you know, they can't use them yet in a way that as adults we think about as sexual behavior. But being able to, to, in the quiet of their own space, be able to you know, give pleasure to their own body is a great skill. Because frankly, if I had a daughter, I don't want her first understanding of her body and how it works and how it feels good to come from somebody else like her first partner. To me, that's where that human right comes in. And I feel that that is a violation of a human right by not educating, particularly in this case, our daughters. And I feel like too, if, if you're you know, if your first experience of what pleasure is for you is coming from a partner, then you're dependent on that partner. And I think that's that's so disempowering Mm -hmm. for women, um, especially in the culture, you know, that we've bred around us about um, sexuality. And like you said, sexual health for for women and and the Me Too movement even, and and how that speaks to, you know, abuse. Because I think if, if we're not, you know, if we're, if we're not respecting our bodies or as women, we're not teaching young girls how to respect their bodies and how to respect that pleasure is an okay thing to pursue. Yeah. 
you know, then, then I would imagine that a lot of girls are saying yes to having sex with partners that they might not want to, or they might be saying, you know, I think one of the things you said was that mm. you heard it. Yeah. Do you want me to no. say it? <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, I was going to say, I sit with far too many women who say this, but one particular one that I remember, which was, you know, I learned, you know, I did kind of understand and learn how to say no but I still never understood when I was when it was right to say yes for me. And and that's where I think the whole I am glad about enthusiastic consent. It is helping the culture move towards, oh wow, this is supposed to feel good too? Really? And you know, speaking about pleasure since you went there, um, you know, all of this really it just, you know, it lays that foundation, you know, of the health of self-touch. And that, you know, and pleasure and just brings awareness to the topic so that it can be scaffolded as they grow. And, you know, it means that if they, you know, make a choice to be sexually active, that they are able to think about, voice and respect their own and their partner's pleasures and desires. And to me, you know, this is the ingredients for consent and the beginnings of the importance of pleasure for all partners. And, Think about it. We don't generally consent to things that feel badly. However, that has been what has happened for, you know, predominantly, you know, many women. And, you know, it also means for our kids that when they ask why people have sex, that we tell them it's because it is something that feels good and in some cases can create a baby. And, you know, to quote Amy Lang, who's a sex educator on the West Coast, I, I love using her, you know, we remind children often that children's hearts, bodies, and brains are not ready for sex. But when they are older, they too may choose to have sex with someone because it feels good and it is one way that people connect, adults connect intimately. I love that so much. And it kind of reminds me of a quote that I heard just to kind of tie in the food piece, you yeah. know, yeah. talking about, you know, women not being okay seeking out pleasure. I mean, that's something I think that mirrors how we think about food as well. And mm -hmm. um, like we're wired to seek out pleasure and food is one of those pleasures. Sure. Which are all basic human instincts, right? right. To get pleasure from food, right. pleasure from sex. And right. kind of together is this quote that I heard, to say food is just for fuel is like, is akin to saying sex is just for procreation. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Of that, <laughs> and I, for the life of me, I can't remember exactly who said that. But when I remember, I show notes for this yeah. show. <laughs> so you know, what if a parent has children who just don't ask questions, or maybe on the flip side, they have children who are very eager to, you know, share that you know this is my vagina, this is my playground. Here, let me show you, which would be normally true if they were, you know, in the same age group and they weren't on the playground, but still, um, you know, honestly, and this is something I cover too, because it is another, you know, really um, typical question that comes up is that, you know, yeah, what if they don't ask questions? And then what if you have the oversharer? And so we know that, you know, there are going to be kids who never ask questions, whether they're shy or they can read from their parent that questions about sex and relationships are just not comfortable. Um, and Interestingly, there was a, um, a UK study through the Department of Children that 44% of teenagers studied did not trust the sex advice they received from their friends, and 75% wished they could talk more easily with their parents about sex and growing up. So we know that they want to, but, you know, so what often happens is that, 
you know, just because the questions haven't presented doesn't mean that they don't need to know it. They just haven't asked. And some kids don't know how to ask, or like I said, they can read body language. So in that case, what it means is that, you know, the parent will need to be, or the caregiver will be the one who needs to bring information to the child as they develop to keep them informed with frequent reminders that, hey, and I'm always here for you for your questions. Because guess what? At some point, they may have a question and it may be an important one. And you want to keep, even though they don't ask questions, you want to let them know that they, that you are there for them. And, you know, just letting them know that even when it's uncomfortable, that you keep talking and we, it's a normative part of their overall well-being, and it's necessary. And again, it's important that we call out our own discomfort because it allows them to relax so they don't have to either save you because you look like you're going to turn red or they don't want to fall in the hole that they wish was behind them so they could just make it stop. And so it's a, it's a way of joining by saying, you know, what's great, you know, great thing to do parent a parent is to either make uh, an apology about something. I think that's a big joiner. And then also let them know when they're struggling and that it's okay to feel uncomfortable and that, you know, talking about these things is important. And back to that great life lesson, right? We talk about things that are uncomfortable because they will need that as a skill in their relationships later. Now to the town crier, as I call them, the kid who is going to run to school, ringing a bell, you know, they're, they're, there's an easy fix to that. And I can't remember if this came from Amy Lang, but um, just letting them know that every parent or caregiver has the right to share information about sexuality and bodies with their children when they choose to do it. And if, you know, Sally, if you were to go to school and do that for that parent, that would take that away from them. And they probably, you know, wouldn't be so happy about that, but it's also not your job, it's theirs. And so just letting them know in a serious way, you know, that this is really something that every family has the right to do on their own time clock. And so you doing it is not a cool thing to do. I love that. And one of the things I've heard you say before too is is a great place to have these conversations. Oh yeah. yeah. And I love what you say. So will you share that with us? Um, oh, are you talking about FBO? That or, yeah, and, and the other and this and the safe. Oh yes, yes. There's a couple places. So yes. um, one thing I'm you know that um, a mom at one of my workshops said, yeah, we use FBO, and I said, what is that? And she said, family business only. And I said, what does that mean? And she said, when we're out in public, we have this you know running understanding in our family that if somebody brings something up that's not appropriate for other people's ears, we say, oop, FBO, and everybody knows it's something we bring home and we talk about. So I love, I've always loved that. And then the other thing to do is that their kid, you know, your kids, especially if you're coming late to this, if you're sort of tardy to the party, which is okay, but know that you may have a kid who's got earphones in their ears and they're like, la, 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 I don't want to hear you. It doesn't mean we don't, we don't stop talking. You would keep talking about drugs and alcohol. You would never put them in a car without, you know, having driver's ed. And you would never throw them in, an, in, a, in a lake without knowing how to swim. And so we really don't want to put our kids into adult bodies without knowing how they work. So whether you're doing it in a car where they're sitting next to you or behind you, that's great because eye contact during these types of conversations is a big challenge for kids. 
So that's fine. And for littler kids, there is nothing more dear than being in a safe place, which is often a child's bed and bedroom. And maybe they're snuggled up in bed. And guess what? The questions, I hear this in every workshop, though mothers or fathers will sort of, you know, smile knowingly that that's a time where they feel safe and comfortable. And with the lowered light or darkness, they feel more comfortable talking about these things. So that's another great place to have these conversations. My kids did do that. And I even allowed, like, if they... If I knew they wanted to stay up later so they were willing to ask more questions, those were the nights where I was fine with staying up later because I was like, they're willing, they're in a safe space in their body right now to receive this. Who cares if we're up another 20 minutes answering right. questions? Yeah. No, that's so great. And I think too that speaks to, you know, if if the child asks that question, mm-hmm. give them yes. the time and the space and respect to answer it. Yes. Even if you don't have an answer, it's okay to say, that's a great question. And, you know, when I finish up dinner, you know, let's, let's connect, you know, back with that. Let's go back to that. Just make sure you do it because you'll lose street cred with them. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess we'll probably, I think you've already said this, but I want to leave our listeners with one final piece of information. And that is what is the one thing or what is the most important thing for caregivers and parents to understand about raising sexually healthy kids? I think something to know so we don't feel shame about it is that it's a charged topic for much of society. And it's, again, to reiterate that it's important to remember that the majority of us never got healthy sexuality talk from our caregivers and parents. So you know, most of us, when we reflect back, we want more for our children today. So here are the things to really remember. Um, Really important that you check in with your values first, because if you don't know your values about sexuality with regards to, you know, do I know how I feel about using certain body part names? Do I have an issue from my own childhood about that? Do I know when my child should date? Do I know when I want my child to first, you know, have any type of relationship or even, you know, kiss somebody. If you don't know your values around that, it's really hard to then give information. So that's why I do recommend reading some of these kids books yourself first, see what comes up. I actually have a whole document around that about checking in with those values because it's it's really the first really important step. Then I suggest, you know, reading the books as I said, get educated or attend a workshop or come in for like a parent consult, just to get yourself, you know, feeling comfortable that you can talk about this stuff with someone else. Use a friend if you if you need to. You know, the be askable and approachable, because avoidance and deflection will push the topic underground, and they will go elsewhere and get it, whether it's online, television, pornography, you know, on the bus, that's, they will go somewhere else and get it. And the last thing I think is, Again, letting them know that you are taking the time to talk about this because it's natural and important to their whole lifespan and because you love them. You love them so much that they're willing to feel uncomfortable and that what is unnatural is not to be prepared for body changes, emotional growth, and not understanding consent. And it'll feel strange at first, but, you know, 
it's practice helps. It's like learning a new language and you can't go out and just speak conversational Spanish if you've never practiced. So those would be kind of the things that I think are key in getting it going. That's such wonderful information. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, a great place to maybe end off. But before we let you go, would you be able to um, share, you already did share a couple books and resources. Yeah. Are there any other resources that you'd sure, recommend? Sure, sure. And I do have a little extra time. So if we, you know, if we okay. need to, we can get this out. Sure. So, you know, as I said, because a lot of these books can be when they're discussing what reproduction is, they can come across as heteronormative. So I really suggest, again, you know, finding stuff that is basic and then build on it. Um, some great resources that I've used in my workshops, um, Mommy, Mama, and Me, and Daddy, Papa, and Me for same gender parents. I really like um, Birds, Bees, and More. And that's by our main zone, Dr. Sandy Karen. She's up at UMO. And that is all the different ways that a baby can come into a family. And that's important. It's important for even someone like me, who my first child was IVF. He knows he, quote, spent time in a Petri dish. And he even said that at school as like a sixth grader. And another kid who I actually know and didn't know, he goes, oh, I did too. And they both had that connection. So just really important to know where we've come from. And then there's Corey Silverberg's books, What Makes a Baby and Sex is a Funny Word. Those are considered, I think, more fluid. Um, so th there are some great books. And my favorite, my mine and my 11-year-old's favorite video on consent is on YouTube by Blue Seat Media. It's called Consent for Kids. Um, that's great. I, I think, you know, any, I think you can start at any age with that because it's just cute and they use a really cute voice, but it's probably, you know, for four or five and up that would best kind of take that in. And then as they get older, the adolescents, um, the boys body book and the girls body book, they're two separate books by Kelly Dunham. Um, the videos that are at amaze.org, all kinds of videos on sexuality and consent. And they're kind of meant to be more hip. They came out in 2000, I think 17. And then um, for adolescents, Spare Me the Talk. There's one for boys, one for girls um, by Joe Langford. And Changing Bodies, Changing Lives is great. Um, but again, checking these books out first to see how they fit in with your values because and you heard me say this, Jen, in the workshop, that it's, you know, your values plus the information is where you're going to get, you know, the, the efficacy. Absolutely. That's so wonderful, Jennifer. Thank you so much for spending so much time talking to us and to our audience and helping us um, you know, equip parents and caregivers of the next generation with tools to build a, a more resilient next generation. So where can our audience find you? Sure. Um, my website is jenniferweissnerhealthysexuality.com. You just have to remember that Weissner is W-I-E-S-S-N-E-R. But if you just put in, if you even put in Jennifer, sex therapist in Maine, I can guarantee you I will pop up. And, and <laughs> we'll, we'll link everything in the show notes okay. too. For our, oh, great. For our and people can call me. You know, I, I pick up my phone, you know, so <laughs> I answer questions. So sure. Absolutely. That's great. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. We so appreciate having you as a resource and we so appreciate everything that you shared with us. Thank today. you yeah. for helping me reduce the shame in Maine. I'm very grateful. I love that. Reduce the reduce shame, the in, shame Maine. in Maine. And, and beyond. And yes, beyond. And beyond. <laughs> well, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Food Confidence Podcast. I'm Jennifer Bravo. And I'm Andrea Paul. If you have any questions about the things you heard in today's episode or have topics you'd like us to discuss in the future, send us an email at foodconfidencepod at gmail.com or follow us and message us on Instagram at foodconfidencepod.